Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, good morning. I would invite you to take your Bibles and return to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is where we are this morning, and we are... Just look at this as kind of a one-week shotter here of just examining this passage. Usually the last Sunday of the year, I like to do a, a focus for the new year. And uh, the passage that uh, Ted read for you uh, outlines or is, is the passage that's really been on my heart for quite a while. I've actually been thinking about this passage for several months in anticipation of this day. And it's something that has been really deeply... Uh, kind of etched in my heart and in my mind is something I wanted to share on this Sunday. And, uh, and, and, and there's a lot in here for us and, and to really kind of help set the goal or uh, give us a mindset for the year. You know, it's this time of the year, a lot of people set a lot of New Year's resolutions and, and things like that and, and opportunities where we, we, we stop and make some self-corrections along the way. And and, uh, and I think spiritually, it's, it's, it's good to take a moment and say, okay, what will be my focus this year? What are some areas I should be thinking about in my, my walk with God? And, uh, and in light of all the things that are going on around us in the world, in light of kind of the, the, the chaos and, uh, of, of the world and the terrorism that's going on and the fear that people are living in, and of course, uh, an election year coming up, which means all kinds of commercials and and, and, and anxieties and people, you know, lobbying for their candidates and all that's going to happen this year. We got like a really eventful year. And, uh, and so what are the things we need to be focusing on? And so that's kind of what I want to look at. And this passage is hopefully one that I think will encourage you and bless you. But before I jump into it, I'd like to just open in a word of prayer. So would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, I thank you for the great privilege to... Uh, Sing these wonderful songs to be reminded of the sure foundation of Christ and that all glory be to him. Thank you that we get a few moments together now to be in your word. Thank you that we have a few moments of just being able to be challenged, convicted, encouraged, built up, all of that as you speak to us through your word. So Lord, I pray that our heart and our mind would not be uh, intent on other things, that the, that the fears and the trials of the world would not creep in, but that we would just be able to take a moment and see what you have said here in this passage. Let it conform us, strengthen us, encourage us, and establish us, that we might walk faithfully with you. In Christ's name, amen. You know, a few years ago, I read a book titled Church Morph. It was a book that was uh, outlining some of the changes that are going on in the world and that, that the church should really be thinking about. Uh, because as the world kind of shifts and changes and cultures shift and change, sometimes it's easy to kind of get tossed around in those changes. And then when, when you do get tossed around, you, you don't know how to respond. And you're just kind of reacting to the changes that are going on in the world. And, and the point of this author was to say, hey, here are the changes going on. Here's what's going on in the world. And here are some potential ways you could respond to these changes proactively rather than just get beaten up reactively. Well, in the book, he outlines what he calls five megatrends that are changing in Europe and North America. 
five megatrends. Here's what he's saying. He's basically saying that, that we're actually going through a major metamorphosis in the world, a major metamorphosis. And in the course of this major metamorphosis, cultures are shifting and, and what used to be is no longer and a new thing is emerging and it's creating a lot of anxiety and confusion for people. I want to give you the five megatrends that he outlined. I think he's true in these observations and I think it's good for us to, to kind of think about them as we think about the world we're living in today. The first megatrend that he, that he says is he said, we're moving from modernity to post-modernity is what he's saying. It's the first, first megatrend. Now, I'm going to kind of just give you general descriptions of these terms. All of these terms are really deep, and you could read for years on them, but I'll just kind of touch the high points of what, what he's saying. Modernity represented kind of the time when, in Europe when, when the church and the state emerged. And the church and the state came up, and they were the two authorities, and they possessed all authority, and you didn't question authority. If, if someone came from the church or the state, they had the power. They, the truth then was established by them. What they said was true was true. It was called modernity. Now, post-modernity comes in and says, now, we're going to challenge all authority, right? 1960s rolls around. Everybody says, wait a minute. Just, just because you're in politics doesn't mean you have all the answers. And just because you're a pastor doesn't mean you have all the answers. We're going to challenge these things. And so challenging authority started emerging. And, and so postmodernism comes in and postmodernity says, hey, listen, all authority should be challenged. No one possesses all authority. No one possesses all truth. Uh, in fact, you should challenge everybody, challenge all assumptions. And he said, we're living in that shift right now. From my parents' generation, if, if your doctor told you something, you did what your doctor said. You never question it. In our generation, we go to the doctor having already talked to Dr. Google, right? And Dr. Google's told us everything. And we walk in there saying, well, are you sure that's the right drug for us? You know, Google says that there's some problems with that drug. You, you know, right? We go in. We challenge the authority. It's post-modernity. It's one of the shifts. There's a second shift that's going on. He says, we move from the industrial age to the information age. Of course, we know in the late 18th century, the Industrial Revolution emerged, manufacturing came up, all kinds of industrial things happened, shaped the way that cities were developed, and so now whole cities are forming around industrial complexes, and people are moving out of the, the rural places, and, 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 and the Industrial Revolution changed the way we view the work week, it changed the way we view vacations, it changed everything put us in this nine-to-five kind of world, Monday through Friday, gave us weekends off, gave us holidays, vacation days. All of that kind of shaped the world. Well, this incredible industrial age that came about in the late 18th and, and or late 19th, early 20th century, that in, incredible move gave way to the information age. And now we live in an age where, 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 where now our focus is all on this, this, this information technology. And it's shifting now. And what's shifting is this. It used to be under the industrial age, you, you maybe lived in a city and you went to work and you made friends with people at your work and then you made friends with people in your church and you came home and, and you lived in a pretty, what they would call a simple network. Now, I can know what your best friend had for breakfast. Even if I don't know your best friend. Because chances are your best friend did some kind of Instagram of their breakfast this morning. Snapped the picture of it and said, this is what I'm having for breakfast. And snapped it and it went out there. And I looked on your best friend's page and said, wow, look at the incredible waffles your best friend had for breakfast. Right? We live in these complex networks now. 
And they're complex networks where people are engaging other people and, and all kinds of information's going out. And it's complex systems and, and young people being raised in this are being raised in these complex networks. And if you're older, you're not used to these kind of complex networks. And you're not used to these systems. It's a shift that's going on. There's another shift he mentions, a shift from the Christendom era to the post-Christendom era. The Christendom era was when the church emerged, especially in Europe and the United States, and, and, and the church had a seat at the table. It used to be in a community 100 years ago that if a community wanted to do a play, they would ask the pastors to review the play to see if it was moral. And if the pastor said, eh, it's not a good play, then they wouldn't do it. You know, the church had a seat. They were like, like the chaplains of the community. Christendom, they, they held this role as having some point of authority. In post-Christendom, the church has, you know, could you imagine the high school, any high school, sending me a note, hey, we're going to do a play here in our high school, Steve. Would you uh, check it out for us, make sure it's moral enough? <laughs> could you imagine that? Right? We, that, that's a foreign concept. We, we don't live in an age where I walk into the room and because I'm a pastor, I have a seat in the community. It's not the world we live in anymore. It's post-Christendom. Those, those traditional structures have changed. And now, all of a sudden, the church is a place that you choose to go to. It's not necessarily part of the community, the culture anymore. It's just, it's just a choice, and we'll unpack that. That will come up later in one of his other trends. The next one he identifies is production initiatives to consumer awareness. It used to be kind of like this. Somebody was going to make a car in 1930. They made a car, and they said, this is what the car is going to be. These are the features you have in the car, and if you want this car, you buy the car. It's called you know, production initiatives. This is what we make. As, as industrialization grew, it got to the point where now we could start customizing the orders. So in the 1950s, you have the big move to the advertisement agencies. They come into sway huge ways in the 1950s. And all of a sudden now, we're customizing everything. And rather than the product being king, this is the car we make. You either buy it or you don't. We now start saying, what do you want in a car? Then we'll put that in a car. And we'll, we'll keep adapting the product to what the customer wants, to the point where now consumerism has emerged, and consumerism is part of our life. And consumerism has, has not just uh, taken over by the way that we view products. Consumerism is now taken over by the way we view everything. I have a choice here. I am the consumer. So we choose everything. We choose it all, and we feel that we should be empowered to make the choice. And it comes all the way down to uh, even a shift. Consumerism has changed. It used to be when someone was born, they were kind of born into a church, and that was their church, and they conformed to the church. And now even the way people view church now, I'm choosing this church because I like such and such. And the moment they stop giving me such and such, I'll find another church, right? It's, just, uh, it's a consumer mentality. It's one of the shifts that are in there. The final shift he mentioned, thank you for bearing through this little lecture on sociology here. Final shift he mentions is from religious identity to spiritual exploration. Again, people used to identify themselves by a particular theological grid. For example, if you were born in Baptist, you stayed Baptist. And if you moved to a new town, you went to the Baptist church in town. 
Now people think more in spiritual experiences. So if you were born into a Baptist church and they had a particular worship experience and you moved to a new town and you went to the Baptist church there and they didn't share the same worship experience, but the Methodist church does, then you'll go to that Methodist church because the spiritual experience is more uh, of the focus than the theological definition. So these shifts are happening. And now spiritual exploration is huge. And now, even today, just spiritualism is taken over where there's just a lot of people who are just spiritual you know, just mystical in nature. And, uh, and, and so we're kind of post-definitions. You know, so I meet a lot of people, a lot of younger people today who, who will just say, well, I'm just spiritual, man. I'm not into the whole church thing, but, but I think God's cool. And, you know, I, I connect with God my own way. You know, just a spiritual exploration. Now, why am I mentioning, why am I spending so much time on these shifts? I'm spending this because I wanted to identify for us, these shifts are very real. And we feel these shifts. We feel we are living in, in, in the age where we are watching all these new things emerge. And especially if you're, you know, middle-aged or older, you're kind of standing back going, wow, everything's changing. Everything's changing. I mean, it's amazing. The first time I got one of those smartphones, I couldn't figure out how to make a call. You know, like every, I can't even make a phone call anymore because I can't figure it out. I still can't, like, click over lines on my phone. Somebody's, if I'm on the phone with somebody, someone's calling, I don't know which button to press. Right? It's all changing. The whole world, you know, but a seven-year-old could probably show me, right, how to work the phone. It's all changing. It's all different. What do we do when we stand in those changes? And are all the changes bad? Should we fight the changes? Should we protest? Should we say, no, we're going to bring back the past? Well, the reality is we can't stop the change. Right? I didn't start the technological revolution, and I certainly can't stop it. I can't stop the death of Christendom, because I didn't start it. These shifts happen, and God's in control of these shifts. And we have comfort in that. But what do we do in the midst of this? Because times of shifts can become times of instability. And times of shifts sometimes cause us to take our eye off of what's most important. And sometimes they can cause us to take our eye off of where the real dangers are in the church. And what I want to do today is address a passage that Ted read for us earlier. And in this passage, Paul outlines, hey, you're living in a world of constant change. Paul's telling this to a pastor, Timothy. Living in a world of constant change. But I want you to keep your eye on where the real problems are. And I want you to keep your eye on what your sure foundation is. So in the midst of everything that's going on, and, and when Timothy was living, the world was really shifting. You could look historically what was going on there. He was living in one of these moments when everything was going crazy too. And yet Paul says, listen, in the midst of all of this, here's where I want you to keep your eye on. These are the, this is the real danger before you, but this is also the real solution, the real foundation. What I want to do is identify that first half of the sermon will be pretty negative. The second half will be pretty positive. The first half, though, is identifying what the real problems are, because sometimes what can happen, and the temptation for us is, you know, we, we shift. So the information age comes in, and we're all kind of head spinning, and, and then it's easy. If, you know, I'm kind of turning to that age where I'm beginning to start sentences, well, when I was your age, and, and now that I'm beginning those sentences, I'm realizing, yeah, I'm noticing the shifts. And sometimes they make me uncomfortable, but yet I don't really want to obsess on that because if I do, I can maybe miss 
the real danger that's before me. So this year, I don't want us in all the stuff that's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen, but I have a feeling it will be a very eventful year in the world. And in the midst of all of that, I want to make sure that we don't lose sight of where the real danger is for the church, for our church, and, and we don't lose sight of where the real solution is, where our real foundation is. Okay? So we're going to look at this here today. There's two dangers, apostasy and persecution. But then there's a sure foundation. So, so let's look at it here. Let's look at the first one. He's going to unfold for Timothy some very real dangers. And the first one is, is what I just want to simply call, you know, apostasy. Okay? Now look at verse 1. He says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now he's talking about, one thing you need to realize is that he's not talking about the world there. He's actually talking about what will potentially, the threat that is going to face the church. This is what could actually come. Say, Timothy, you need to realize something. He says this, but realize, in the last days, now when he says last days, what he's talking about is the time from, from when Christ ascended to the time Christ returns, that space in between in the New Testament is called the last days. So he's not just saying this is what you're going to face in Ephesus alone. He's saying this is what the church will face until the return of Christ. This threat. And I want to call this threat simply not just apostasy, but break it down into specifically false teaching. Because notice verse 5, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. He's basically saying this, there will be people who will want to put on a shell that everything is perfect, everything is right, they are walking with God, everything is good. But in their very heart, they will deny Christ. They will not be really following him. They might give him lip service. They might sing their praises and raise their hands. They might do all of that. But what they're not going to do is actually follow Christ. And when you peer behind the curtain to see what's there, this is what you will find. To even be more dramatic about it, it's kind of like they're going to show up on Sunday, you know, using our vernacular. They're going to show up on Sunday. They're going to look great. But when you step into their home, you will not find two people seeking to follow Christ or a family seeking to follow Christ. They might not be perfect, but struggling. But along the way, see, you will find this kind of stuff. You'll find proud people, arrogant people, abusive people, disobedient children, ungrateful people, unholy, arguing, fighting, slanderous, just... Junk going on and on and on. And two people not repenting to follow Christ, but just fighting it out. This is just what's going to happen. And he says, now, do not build your church on these people. Avoid them. Don't do that. It's dangerous. Now, of all of this list, I'm not going to define everything in the list because we don't have time. But there's just three of them I want to point out to you. The rest of them, you can figure out what these words mean. Right? They mean exactly what you see there. But there's three of them that I think are important, important to pull out. They're the three loves of the passage. There's three loves mentioned in there. 
Okay, the first love is mentioned in verse 2. They'll be lovers of themselves. If you want to put a big word by it, narcissism. They will be self-focused. What's going to happen is there'll be people who will put a shell on, pretending like they're in Christ. But when you peel behind the curtain, it's all about them. Me, me, me. I love me. You saying this is a real threat that could come to the church. Narcissistic people who will make decisions on only what's best for them, not what's best for the kingdom of God. Their needs will drive everything. They will be in love of self-fulfillment. I can't do this for Jesus. It doesn't make me feel fulfilled. Me, narcissism, self-focus. He says that's a very real danger, the temptation. And in our culture, it's really hard because we live in a culture that loves to promote narcissism, right? Promote it. Everybody gets an award. Everyone's great. Everyone's this, right? Just total narcissism. Just it's all about you. That's it. It's all that matters. Second love found in verse 2. Not only will they have lovers of self, they'll have lovers of money. You could put this big word by it, materialism, right? Narcissism, the first one. Materialism, the second one. The pursuit of life will be the material things, and they'll add the church as it fits in around the love of material goods. I would rather live for my boat on the weekend than worship with God's people, right? Materialism, this is really what I love. This is really what I live for. This is really where my heart is. This is what owns me. Materialism. I need, I need this stuff. You don't understand. I need the bigger house. I need the bigger car. I love this stuff. This is what I'm working for. More, more, more. Materialism. He says this is what will be a challenge in the church. Third love is found in verse 4. Lovers of pleasure. The big word we can put there is hedonism. Narcissism, materialism, hedonism. Loving my own pleasure. Entertainment will be the way you make life bearable. Life gets stressful, turn on the TV, right? Just ignore it. Just, just living for entertainment. Not only that, I will make decisions only based on what is pleasurable. So coming with a message to say, hey, listen, following Jesus might cause you to lose out on everything on this planet. You might be play- God might call you to be in a place where you're going to have to love and care and sacrifice for someone. And it means that you're not going to have what other people have. And people will go, no, 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 I can't do that. You don't understand. It strips me of my identity. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah. It should. But the challenge for us is hedonism, right? He's saying these are the real struggles the church is going to face. Right? Narcissism, materialism, hedonism. He's saying realize this. This can happen. Don't let this take root, Timothy. Don't let it take root. It's a serious thing. See, the real issue here is that the spirit of the age can take over in our hearts, in our hearts. So yes, forms of church might change. Cell phones might change. The way I do my banking might change. Everything might change. The way I start my car might change. It is going to change. Everything's going to change. But the real danger isn't that some new technology is going to take over and I won't be able to change my oil again. The real danger is going to be narcissism. 
Materialism. Hedonism. But then he goes on. He says, not only will this, right, there will be people like this. In fact, later in chapter 4, he says, those kind of people are going to want preachers who will preach to these ends. You know, that's what chapter 4 of Timothy, 2 Timothy is saying. They're going to want to mass preachers who will just give them this kind of sermon. Don't be that kind of guy is what he tells them. But he says, because why? They're going to amass for them false teachers. Because notice verse 6. He says, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning, never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men of corrupted mind and disqualifying regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was all of those two men, as with that of those two men. That's a strange passage, especially this element of creeping into houses with weak women. What's he saying there? He's saying this. He said, now listen, in that whole group, that whole mass of people who are, have this form of godliness, but really in their heart they denied Christ, out of that will come predators. And those predators are going to prey on people who are in this state. And they're going to amass these people. And when he talks about weak women, he's not slamming women here. What he's, what he's referring to are people, he's, he's kind of picturing, trying to come, come up with like kind of the weakest situation you can. A situation where somebody is, is, is stuck in sin, they can't get out, there's no way out, there's no help for them. Uh, you know, a woman alone was in that day uh, considered a very vulnerable picture, right? And so, so this is a picture of vulnerability. Somebody who's vulnerable, who's burdened with sin, and is easily led astray because they don't have the foundation of Christ. And these predators will come up and they'll find those people and they'll start picking them off. That's what he's saying. They'll start picking them off. But he said, don't worry. They will be exposed. So he uses the story of Moses. It's a pretty interesting story. Because in this story of Moses, what you have is uh, uh, Moses was standing before Pharaoh and he had a staff in his hand. Some of you, most of you know this story. And he throws his staff down, turns into a snake. Then Pharaoh had these two priests standing on, on either side of him. Uh, the Apocrypha names them as Janus and Jambres. We don't really know if those were their names, as the Apocrypha says. And so these two guys are standing there, and they throw their staffs down, and their staffs turn into snakes. Now the point of that story is they're offering a counterfeit method. They're offering a counterfeit religion. Moses says, boom, here's the power of God. And they go, well, here's our power. Boom. And they throw their power down. And he says these false teachers will do the same thing. They'll offer an entire counterfeit uh, method, a counterfeit message. Everything they do will be a counterfeit. But they will be exposed. Eventually, these false teachers will be seen as being false teachers, just like Janus and Jambres were. How were Janus and Jambres exposed? Moses' snake ate their snakes. Right? So Moses' snake comes along and eats the first one, eats the second one, and says, there you go. It's a counterfeit. It's not true. This isn't the truth. And he says, these guys will come. Don't worry. God will expose them. But he's saying, realize this. In, the, in these days, this is what's going to happen now. There's going to be people who will want to have a form of godliness, but deep inside, they don't really want to repent and follow Jesus. Coming out of that will be people who will be preying on people like this. They're going to be praying on them. But don't worry. God will expose them. God will expose them. Don't panic. They'll be made evident to all. 
But he says, realize this. There's where your first threat is. It's in this apostasy. There's a second threat. We'll keep building on the bad news here. There's a second threat. And the second threat is that persecution will be on the rise. He says in verse 10, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now, a few weeks ago, we studied these persecutions. Paul was out there preaching, and, and, a, and these religious leaders were following him around. They tracked him down, and they were throwing rocks at him, trying to kill him. And they, they stoned him and left him for dead. And Timothy was there. He witnessed this. He was one of the disciples that, that Paul had made on his journey. But he says this to him. He says, now you, however, in verse 10 there, he's saying, in contrast to these false teachers, you're different because you're following me. And my aim is to make disciples of Christ. That's what I do. This is my mission. Even though I'm out there trying to proclaim Christ, yes, the false teachers will come after you, and they will try to take you down. But you saw how God delivered me. You witnessed it. You know. But realize this in verse 12. Notice what he says. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The reality is that these teachers are going to keep coming, they're going to keep coming, they're going to keep coming, and you're going to be trying to live for Christ, and you're going to try to be following these things, which means you'll take stands on things, and, and you'll do things, and they're going to come after you, they're going to come after you, but realize this, if you desire to love Christ, be prepared. You guys might find this in your own homes even. You might be around family members and you're going to want to take a stand for Christ. And your own family members might say, we don't ever want to talk to you again if you're going to live for Jesus. We, don't, we want nothing to do with you. You might experience that. It could be something as simple as that all the way to those people that we see being marched to their death in other countries because they're Christians. And some terrorist is going to cut their head off with a knife. We live in a world where there are people who literally are facing this in the most literal sense and being persecuted for their faith in Christ. Down to us who maybe don't face that tomorrow or the next day, but we do face the rejection that comes. When you say, I just, I just want to do what the scriptures say, I want to follow Christ, and people are fighting against it. But he says this, realize this is what's going to happen. This is the nature. This is the real threat. And all of the shifts that are going on, we want to keep our eyes open, because if we don't, I don't want to be led astray into the apostasy. I don't want to be led astray by the false teaching. I don't want to be led astray and, and be asleep at the watch and, and allow things to take place in our church or in our homes that would give way to apostasy, that would give way to this kind of apostasy and false teaching. Now, those are the threats. Those are the very real threats. So we stand at this year and we say, okay, those are our threats this year. Let's put them on the table. But what now is the foundation? How do we stand firm? Where is the good news, right? So here is where, if there were a soundtrack following me, here's where the music would start getting happy. Okay, this is where we, we begin to start realizing, but there is a foundation for us. There is something we can stand upon. And he says this in verse 14. But as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You know what I love about that? that? That is like, you know, my top 10 favorite passages. And the reason why is this. I'm thinking about this guy, Timothy, there in Ephesus, and he's trying to establish a church. He's trying to appoint elders. He's dealing with false teaching. He's got this major temple there in front of him that, that has all this sin in it and all these problems. I mean, it's just, this guy has a hard job. I am like so glad God didn't call me to that kind of job. That is a hard job. He is facing intense, intense trials and persecution just as a pastor. And the thing that Paul calls him to is not some new theological insight, right? He doesn't say, now, now you're facing all of this, but uh, realize this, remember the theological insight that I discovered in my post-postdoctoral studies when I discovered this little interesting Hebrew word that means such and such and blah, blah, blah. He doesn't do that. He says, now remember what your mom and your grandma taught you. That is what is going to get you through these difficult last days. There's no new message being given. He's bringing them back to the very message that he learned in his home. Isn't that incredible? You realize this. When you teach God's word to your children, by the way, this is like starting a soapbox right now. I just want you to know I'm going to step onto it. Okay, when you are teaching your children at home, you're not just giving them little Bible lessons so that they'll just be obedient in your home. You're giving them the foundation that they can stand up against the worst persecution and survive. Isn't that incredible? Like this should be the thing that would say, wow, Paul drives him back to what he learned as a kid from his mom and his grandma who taught him the Bible. This is just incredible. This is why it's so important we get the word of God out into people's lives. Okay, off the soapbox now. Important. There is the sure foundation. And the sure foundation is simply this. He says, you were taught as a kid the Bible. And in the very word of God is the very word of life because in that very word of God is the message of Christ And when you place your faith in that message, there is your sure foundation. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. This is it. It's not any more complicated than that. You want to prepare your children for whatever post, 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 whatever dumb is coming along. Post, post, post Christian dumb, post, post, post modern dumb, whatever it is. Whatever is coming for your grandchildren, you want to establish them? You don't need to know anything about the post, post, post Christendom age that's coming. You don't even know how to use, you don't have to know how to use a cell phone. You don't have to be hip at all. You can be so unhip, maybe that you're hip, but, but so out of it. And yet, you can bring the very word of God to a young child and say, I'm going to prepare you for what's coming. You need to know what God has said. And you say, Steve, is it really that certain? You know, here you, you read all these books on all this stuff and you spent 10 minutes of the sermon talking about all this post stuff. Yeah, I just had to fill 10 minutes, right? You don't need, no, right? You don't, but the reality is all these shifts are happening, but here's what you need to know. 
The very word of God is what you need. Why? Look at verse 16. All scripture is literally breathed out by God. It's a word that means inspiration. It means it literally is coming from the very personhood of God. These aren't words about God. God is literally saying, this is what I want you to know. This is it. This is it. This is what you need. It's breathed out. It isn't words about God. It's God himself speaking, collecting, putting his words down. And he's saying, listen, this is coming from God. And it is profitable. It's profitable. Literally, it's where the value lies. That's the value. That's what's going to help you if you're facing an angry relative. And it's what's going to help you if you're facing a bloodthirsty terrorist. The same thing. The same thing. It's profitable. Now for Timothy, who is the pastor here, here's what he's saying directly to him. He's saying, Timothy, do you realize something? This word of God is what is profitable when you do your job. You got to, because this is what you use to teach Right? When you're going to stand up and unfold like I'm doing. What you're going to use to reprove. When you sense an error in the congregation and you've got to tell the congregation, I'm sensing there's an error here and I want to address that head on. You do it from the word of God. You do it when you're correcting somebody. Let me show you how this is supposed to be done. Let me, let me show you the right way to do this. And when you're training people to walk in righteousness, when you're actually making a disciple, we do it from the very word of God. He's saying, when you're doing this, this is what it is. And hopefully then, as the people are receiving this, what happens? They're receiving the very word of God, and that is what gives you the strength, the wisdom, the power, the discernment, all that you need. And he says, Paul says to Timothy, this word is such so that you would be, verse 17, a man of God, that you as a man of God, a minister is what he's saying, may be complete, meaning lacking nothing. Lacking nothing. It's pretty amazing to stop and think about it. What's required these days of the amount of study you have to do to be in the ministry, to get a degree, to go to seminary, pass your tests and stuff. But he's saying, listen, the only thing that you need to do this job is right here. You got to know this. This is it. Give this out to people. This is what makes you complete. This is what makes you complete. This is what equips you for the whole work of ministry. And then, obviously, the work of ministry is equipping the body, so it's what's going to equip the body for the work of ministry. Now, why am I saying all this? I want us to think about this as we face this new year. I have one challenge for us this new year. Nothing really huge, but I think very important. I really think it'd be good for us as a church to stop and say to ourselves, what role does the Bible play in my life. Because it is true that we face these very real threats. Paul said, in the last days, you're going to face apostasy. You're going to face people who are going to want to come and define Christianity differently. They'll want to hold to a form of godliness, but they want to deny the very power of Jesus. You're going to face persecution. People are going to come after you for wanting to follow Jesus. Those are very real threats. Very real threats. There's real threats for us. But the solution is saying, all of us, saying we are going to be people of the word. 
Not just people who, who, who attend and, and listen to the word preached, but those who engage it regularly, engage it in our homes, engage it with our children, engage, 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 fully engaging the word of God. And as we think about this, I, I, I have realized something. I think in the course of doing that, hopefully a few other things will emerge as we think about our, our life. And I was thinking, well, I want to engage the Word of God. And in the course of engaging this Word of God, it occurred to me that I should probably look at the loves of my life and ask myself, have any of those loves that he mentioned there taken root in my life? And maybe one of the goals of this year is to say, God, I don't even want to be led astray by narcissism or materialism or hedonism. I don't want to love myself and love money and love pleasure over loving God. And so if I'm going to spend a year kind of reaffirming my, my, my stand on the truth, then I probably should begin that by repenting of any of the loves, false loves, that could have taken over in my heart. And maybe a good way to begin this year is to say, okay, I'm going to take stock. Have any of these things taken root in my life? Am I holding to a form of godliness but denying its power? Really not following Jesus? And as I begin there, and I say, okay, God, I want to deal with those false loves so that I can then spend my life understanding this word and bringing it to my home and the way we process life and, and the way I think about everything. One of the reasons, one of the things that we're doing this January in a few weeks is we're starting this study on the word of God. We're looking at, at, at how do we actually understand the word of God in light of the way sometimes people want to destroy the word of God. We're going to look at, at, at different ways people view the Word of God so that we could crystallize and say, yes, we want to be people of the Word. Now, why are we offering that? We're not offering that just to fill up time so that you can have a Bible class to go to, but to establish you in the Word of God. And everything that we want to do this year is about that end. It's not just another Bible study. It is an opportunity for you to be grounded that much more in the Word of God. Because that is going to be our only stability in a world that is shifting and changing all around us. And I want us to be able to stand firm as people of the Word, standing on the Word, living in the Word, and following it completely. So would you bow your head with me? As we do, I'd like you to maybe take a moment and think about life, think about the loves of your life, have any false loves taken root? Maybe think about the Word of God in your life, what role it plays between Sundays. Maybe some of you were really active in it and spending so much time years ago in, in studying the Word, and then it's gotten lost by the wayside. And maybe you're kind of looking and saying, yeah, I, I used to really get into it, and I don't anymore. Maybe you need to revive that again. Maybe the Spirit of God is saying, yeah, it's time to get back. Think about these things. Respond as the Spirit leads you to realizing the need of the hour before us. Father, we live in a unique age. I know every Christian has prayed that prayer to you, but ours is unique to us. As the world is shifting, persecution is on the rise, 
False teaching is on the rise around us. People want to redefine it. People are afraid to call sin, sin. There are people who want to stand and redefine righteousness by just a shell, by how they look, but not really addressing their heart. Lord, free us from any kind of judgmental spirit. We don't want to be absorbing a negative spirit of the age, but Lord, help us to recognize that you drove us to your word. May we stand firm this year. If things change in our culture and we lose our our status, our 501c3 status, if we can't exist in the same institutional manner, may we stand firm in your word regardless. If the world shifts and politics change and and our country changes forever as a result of a a series of elections, may we stand firm in your word. If terrorists move in and we face even more death and more persecution, may we stand firm on your word. Lord, we just want to have one response. But the very grounding that we need is in your word. May we establish our children in it. May we be faithful to do that. May we be faithful to expose our children to your word that they might be able to call back to it in difficult times. May we ourselves not lose track of it because we've allowed our love of ourself or love of our pleasure or the love of material things to to overtake our hearts. Lord, help us to stand firm. Lord, may this year be a year where we come back and we say at the end of the year, we stood firm, we got in your word more, we grounded ourselves that we might be fully complete, equipped, established for the work of the mission that you've placed before us. Lord, let that be true of us by your grace and in your mercy. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.